Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we are speaking with Yoni Asia, the founder and CEO of social investment network eToro, which was founded in 2007, if I'm correct. It has over 9 million users. It's the world's leading social trading platform, offering a wide array of tools to invest in the capital markets, also on the leading cusp of the crypto and blockchain evolution. Yoni founded eToro. And before Ituro, Yoni was a co-founder and development manager of CD Ride, the world's first on-ride video technology company. Previously, he was a programmer and project manager in the IDF. Yoni, welcome to the show, and I hope I covered everything. If not, why don't you fill in the blanks on your background, and we'll start there. Thank you very much for having me on the show, and you actually covered it uh, very nicely. <laughs> Perfect. So we'll just jump right in then. When do you know you want to start and build a company? Well, I've been passionate about uh, finance and technology since I was uh, around 13. Uh, so uh, we've talked a lot about the stock markets and capital markets uh, uh, in my house. Uh, my father has also been a CEO and a founder of a publicly uh, traded uh, company on NASDAQ. Um, and I've been also passionate about technology since I was very young. Uh, so I started developing when I was about 13. I think I realized I want to be, but I remember I, like in very early age, I wanted to build stuff. I wanted to create stuff. Um, probably like 15, 16, I realized what I want to do is build businesses, be an entrepreneur. Um, and with my two passions being uh, finance and technology, uh, life eventually led me to, to launch a fintech company. And so from, you know, you, you, you left CD Ride, right? And so after that, you decided to, you saw the writing on the wall. What made you want to jump into the financial market? Though? I mean, you know, you had, you, what, you had E-Trade, you had a couple of trading platforms out there, but definitely no social aspect to it. There wasn't, I mean, there was stock, I think stock twist was around maybe, um, but there wasn't a huge aspect on the social side. So first I, I was, passionate about capital markets uh, as I mentioned from a very young age I actually did my portfolio management license uh, during my army service uh, and there's like a, an interesting sort of uh, circle of life there I my portfolio management license I studied in Meitav Dash uh, uh, Svi Stepak the founder of Meitav Dash was actually uh, my, the lecturer uh, he, he basically instructed in the course, and now I sit on the board of Mantav Dash. Uh, and I remember back then when I was just about to finish my army service, I had to decide whether I'm going into technology, whether I'm going to study and work in technology or going to the financial markets, and I actually decided to go into technology, join CD-Ride, uh, helped found it, um, and, and basically went and learned computer sciences. Uh, then when I did my master's in computer sciences, I did uh, my, my thesis was around visualization 
of financial services. Mm-hmm. And I showed some of the work to my uh, older brother, Ronen Asia, who is my co-founder at eToro. And he said, listen, it's, it's interesting what you're doing, but it's still very much boring and looks like accounting stuff, <laughs> you know, numbers, charts, yeah. uh, spreadsheets. Uh, and, and then we started brainstorming about capital markets and about the fact that if you look at Internet services, uh, whether, you know, it's games online or whether you look at social networks back then, then you see millions of people. And when you look at trading platforms, it's, you know, for every country, it's several dozens of thousands. So it hasn't really caught up as a mass retail market outside the U.S., right? So we looked at the U.S. as an example of what should happen in the global capital market. So the E-Trade revolution never happened outside the U.S., and then we realized this a lot about user experience and simplifying everything. So we started hacking the user experience and through that found social actually started as an add-on feature on the platform. So we created a, a very uh, entertaining uh, platform for trading basically financial markets and added a chat feature where people saw each other profiles and could talk to one another. And that simply became the by far most used part of the platform. So re- we realized that social uh, features have that impact and transitioned into that being the focus of the company. Interesting. So before we get back more into it, I'm going to take you back a little bit. Um, so what was your first job and what did you learn from it that stayed with you? If there's anything that you learned from it. My first job, uh, well... I had the, a lot of like small jobs before the army. I never had a real job after oh. the army because I founded City Ride and then founded Etoro. No. So, so from let's say from City Ride, which yeah. was your first real foray after the army. Um, so, I think the key lessons uh, from City Ride is I, I learned how to work with co-founders. I, I definitely learned about the importance of the business model. And the, the need to raise funds properly, sort of, you know, constant up rounds rather and trying to raise sufficient money to not uh, being needed to think about raising funds for at least 18 months. Uh, at CD-Ride, we were in sort of constant mode of raising money. Um, and the business model uh, w- was very harsh on a small startup company because we had to finance the installations that we've installed on the roller coasters. Uh, so I, I think that learn sort of took me from being a developer uh, and sort of a technology guy towards understanding uh, how important it is to understand sort of the business planning of, uh, of any business of a startup and the sufficient financing for that business. Oh, interesting. And so is there anything... And this, I ask this to you know pretty much anyone who gets you know comes and sits with me. Is there anything that you feel that that really bothered you, you know, growing up or you know at CDRI that you that you like were really frustrated and how did you overcome it? Um, so for, first, I always wanted to be an actor, so I definitely <laughs> failed on that. Um, but. Again, as I mentioned before, I think uh, in CD Ride we sort of constantly had to raise the money, then we've spent the money, and we were in constant 
sort of funding cycle. Yeah. Uh, and I think that was one of the most important things in eToro is every time we've raised funds, we've raised them sufficiently before uh, we had to. So we always, almost always raised funds when we still have significant amount of funds uh, in our cash balances and always try to raise money for at least another 18 months. So we almost always manage the company to make sure we have sufficient money for the next 18 months. Um, and I think that helped us a lot at, at eToro uh, where we failed to do that uh, properly at CD-Ride. Okay, so, you know, so the early days, you know, you and your brother pretty much are coming up with, with eToro, right? And, you know, you, you built the platform, you put it out there, you know, how did you get traction to start? Did you share with friends and family to start? Did you push it out there? Did you try and get paid? How do you get that initial growth? And then, you know, from there, let's, you know, how do you grow it a little bit even further? So we actually had a, an, an amazing run in the first couple of years. Uh, we were, I think, by far the, the simplest sort of uh, platform uh, to trade online outside the U.S. Uh, and actually used quite effectively paid marketing. So both uh, 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 back then it was mostly Google and affiliates. Mm. Uh, and we've learned how to do sort of ROI-driven marketing. Uh, we brought on uh, at a very early stage uh, a, a very good sort of VP online marketing that understood very well how to sort of spend money to acquire customers and how to measure their LTV. Uh, we took a lot of the know-how in Israel uh, that was quite popular back then in several industries and implemented it in, in a new industry. And, and that just took off very fast and, and we felt comfortable sort of uh, 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 putting uh, sort of the, the moving forward quite fast. I, first, I think 12 months we launched it in September 2017, uh, and then our marketing budget was 10,000, then 20,000, then 40,000, then 80,000, then 160,000, 320,000. Um, the first year of operation, if I remember correctly, we already have five and a half million dollars in revenues in, 2000, in 2008. 2008, wow. And, and so, so you already knew, so you already knew you were onto something. Right? You, you, you saw this, you saw the. You know that there's there's something to really work with and 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 build. So, you know, how did you you know did you think it'd be as big as it is today? I mean, when you were planning that, and we'll get into some of the financing because I know you've raised a really tremendous amount of money um, from VCs and from private investors as well. But you know, you got traction. You're building the first year revenue. The first year you're making five million in revenue. Which is pretty astonishing. I mean, you know, a lot of companies really weren't doing that in the first year. You know, how do you start building a company, right? From the time you and your brother started to that end of the year, how many people did you ramp up to? What, through the first two years? Yeah, the first two years. So Sorry, did you keep a lean and mean, or did you... No, we, we scaled uh, quite effectively, uh, not as fast as, as some companies, again, quite conscious to always have sufficient amounts of money for the next 18 months. Um, uh, but I think f by the end of 2008, we were probably at least 50 people. 
Um, so within sort of the first year of operation, uh, but then the business grew at the same rate. Um, and we constantly looked at everything from the point of view of sort of revenues minus expenses, uh, what's left, how much money we have in the bank, and how much can we grow faster. And this is before you raised outside, outside funding? No, we, 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 started, we raised our, our initial seed. We raised $1.7 million okay. at the end of 2006. Um, that was mostly private individuals, uh, Israeli uh, investors, angels, mostly from the high-tech industry and the VC mm-hmm. industry. And were they, when you went to them, were they like, oh, this is great? Or they were just like saying, it's an interesting idea, we're going to bet on you and your, you know, you two. Or did they see the the, the, the vision? I, I think they saw the vision. I think they also helped us a bit pivot the vision, uh, taking it more towards finance rather than entertainment. So we thought of sort of making trading something fun. Uh, and, and sort of throughout the fundraising process, we realized trading should be enjoyable, but also a serious business. Uh, <laughs> so we also sort of changed the name of the company throughout the first year, two years. It was originally Tradonomy. Then it sort of became eToro uh, to sort of meet the product. Yeah. Uh, so the product became the company. Um how was how is, how is that with, I mean, as a founder, right? How, how did you, were you receptive to it? Did you push back a little? Did, you know, because again, I know uh, one of the issues with founders, and this is um, most founders, it's a very ego-driven, right? It's, it's your baby, right? right? You have an idea in your head. And you, the good thing is you want to see succeed. So you will get to that point of listening to other people. But initially, it, it somewhat hurts to say, okay, this guy who wants to give me money is telling me what I'm thinking of is not really the vision that is needed to grow the company. So I, I think, you know, everything is about balance. Uh, I generally say to entrepreneurs, uh, you should tell your story to as many people as possible. And that's what we did. I think we met 40 or 50 different angels <laughs> back then. Um, some of them clearly told us that the business wouldn't work. Uh, for various reasons, some told us that you can't sell, you can't build a fintech business out of Israel. Th- this was before the term fintech Even, was invented. Yeah. So it was, you can't build a global financial services company out of Israel if you want to take, make this serious move to either London or the U.S. because you can't run financial, global financial services from Israel. Um, but then I had this story from my father who told me that when he started selling software from Israel uh, back in the early 90s, people told him, you can't sell software out of Israel. Uh, you should focus on selling oranges. Uh, so, so, so it's just cycles of what you can sell out of Israel. Um, but we heard a lot of people telling us that they, you know, that the concept is just a bad idea. Uh, we heard a lot of people explaining to us why we can't do it. And then we heard some people who sort of looked at what we're doing and said, it's smart, but you need to change it a bit. And, and a lot of people who sort of focused also on the team and, and told us, uh, so Guy Gamzu uh, was the lead investor. The guy, guy was the second, he was on my second podcast. So, so, so guy, guy really believes in people. And mm-hmm. he told us that as we started, he told us like, you know, ideas can fail while team can still win. Uh, and if you understand that and, and open your ears and pivot to the market uh, mm-hmm. and see how 
other ideas resonate with the market, uh, then, the com- then the company can grow beyond the initial idea. Um, and, and we listened a lot to Guy. We listened a lot at the first stage. Um, and he was very helpful in also helping us understand the importance of recruitment, HR, org structure. Uh, so we build from the get-go. We build a, a, like a very good team. Some of them, by the way, still VPs in eToro. So mm-hmm. uh, two of my management members have been with eToro from 2007. <laughs> um, well, that goes into my next question. My next question was, you know, when you're scaling, right, how do you – I mean, especially finding good people, right? So what qualities do you look for in employees, you know, um, especially you also have, uh, you know – you know, and the retention aspect to it, right? The loyalty. So those two, how do you, how, how do you get those? So first of all, you know, when you start the business, we were very conscious. We wanted to find people who sort of were looking for their step up, mm-hmm. right? Just like what we're doing, right? So we didn't hire, you know, these highly paid executives. We hired people who wanted to become sort of C-level executives mm-hmm. in a startup, uh, and wanted to take that jump with us. I'm not sure that's a, a good um, advice I'm giving right now because maybe the market has changed right now. For me, when we did the early recruits, it was very important to focus on compensation through equity uh, rather than through cash. So to make sure people sort of are, are have a stake in the company mm-hmm. versus sort of getting paid what they use to be getting paid elsewhere. So somebody came to me and said, I expect X. My offer was 0.7X uh, mm-hmm. on cash and then equity on top of that. Uh, and, and also explaining how that equity will eventually be worth significant amounts of money. Yeah. Um, so so there was a, a big focus initially recruiting. And we tried to define first the org structure, what we need in the company, and then go and recruit the right people. There are also there is always sort of opportunities coming up, but we try to all, all, we'll always think about this as sort of the structure. What's the right structure for the company, and how, how do we make sure we have the right people at the right seats in the bus? So, how many com- how many employees do you have today? About six hundred and twenty. And well, six hundred and twenty. And in, in two thousand eight, ended two thousand eight. I think you said you had fifty. Yeah. Uh, that's <laughs> so six hundred twenty today. That's that's a nice amount. Um, and and what do you want for your employees, right? So, and, and I, I, you know, I ask this a lot, especially the the companies that are scaling. You 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 have to want something for them, right? You know, to to create that environment, to create that loyalty aspect. You know, you want to give them, you know, something beyond. You want, to, in a sense, create a family for them. So first of all, we do we have a Facebook uh, group called Itoro Family, uh, <laughs> where we have all the employees of Itoro Worldwide sort of participating. Uh, so so we, we do think that's a very important value, sort of enjoy uh, in your work. So we also relatively early on sort of define the vision of the company, the values of the company, the mission statement. So we did that strategic work to get people synced, and then every. One or two years, we sort of sit around the table and try to refresh those. Uh, we're just sort of crafting our new mission statement uh, right now. Uh-huh. Uh, and a part of the values of the company is how we want people to sort of enjoy their workspace and how we also want our customers to enjoy the product. So enjoyable is a key aspect uh, and a key value of the company. 
simplicity is a key value of the company. Uh, we want for people at eToro to uh, understand in a simple way what, what we expect them to do. Uh, and we want our products to be simple for our users. Uh, innovation uh, is a key value for the company. Uh, we try to innovate. We had some of the best ideas uh, that we've developed and were successful actually brought to us by employees in the company coming from different departments. Um, and that's a sort of also how we're recognized in the space. We're considered uh, sort of a leader by innovation in the trading and investing space. Um, and openness, uh, obviously, we're a social network. So finance is very opaque by nature. Uh, it's a very private uh, you don't know how many, uh, how much your friends are paying for mortgage, mm -hmm. uh, or how much they're paying for their debts. Um, and uh, Editoro, everybody gets the same price. Everybody sees what everybody is doing, so you actually get to see the trades other people are doing. You get to talk to them, ask them questions. That's a very big responsibility and liability on a company to enable all of your customers to talk to one another on a wall. Um, and, and very non-finance from us to do something yeah. like that. Um, and, but it also sort of represents something very uh, relevant to the Israeli culture, uh, that sort of uh, openness uh, and directness where everybody tells you what they think. Uh, so we have open door policy in the company. Everybody can talk to everybody regardless of where they are in the organization. Uh, and we eventually... As I mentioned, enjoyable is a key part of what we believe. We believe people, our employees, should have fun at work. They should come with a smile. It doesn't mean that work isn't hard, uh, but you need to work hard in order to play hard. Yeah, correct. Um, so, you know, in terms of, you know, so you were using some paid, um, you know, in 2008, some paid, you know, marketing um and so, but you scale tremendously over the years and even more so. So are you using the same types of strategies or are you, you know, employing new ones now, especially because you guys are, I think, are pushing big into the crypto world as well. Um, and that's something that I think you guys were early on as well. Uh, right. I think in 2010, you were really, saw the writing on the wall, got involved. Um, and I know over the past year or two, things have definitely gone up tremendously in terms of the buzz around the financial world. It's no longer just a, you know, an afterthought or, you know, a silly thought. So I think from a marketing point of view, we all we always look at like three parts. Uh, one is paid marketing. Uh, and we've always had that mission, which is really not trivial for uh, a non-online company or a non-data-driven company, mm -hmm. we really try to scale the marketing budget year over year. Like we have that mission to sort of push the boundaries, spend more. Uh, then in parallel, it's a lot around product innovation. So trying to understand what users will look for next year and also understand how that translates into USP, into messaging, into sort of organic marketing. So when you launch a product, we ask ourselves, are people are actually going to write about this product? Is this going to be interesting for journalists to cover? Sort of how do you create product innovation that resonates well with the not the market, the users only, but also the markets, the press? Uh, and the third is a lot about brand, 
Uh, we've done that less in the first years and significantly more over the last uh, two, three years. In the UK, uh, we've been advertising on taxis, on billboards, uh, sponsored football teams. Uh, we've been doing TV. We sponsored tennis players. Uh, we took uh, uh, an actor from Game of Thrones to do the HODL commercial. So we are looking more and more about the combination of sort of organic traffic driven by product innovation uh, and press, paid market driven by a data-driven ROI approach, uh, and brand marketing, which is really about creating uh, these ads and creatives that resonate with our customers where they're sort of surprised and happy to see us uh, on the ads. And so, you know, could you just so for reference, um, you know, what is the, what are some of the... So this is give, give me some, um, you know, type of reference. Um, what are some of the numbers you're seeing now in terms of your overall... I mean, you could give broad shows. I don't know if you want to get into specifics, but in terms of revenue... In terms of, you know, comparing it to, let's say, even, you know, 2010. I mean, you guys are, what, you have over 9 million users now? Yeah, we have over 10 million users. Uh, just over the past two years, we've grown revenues by more than uh, 600%. Um, and that's just sort of 17, 18. Uh, so we, we've seen a tremendous amount of growth over the past two years. Um, we had over... Uh, we had a, about a trillion dollars of uh, trading volume in 2018, uh, which is a very big milestone um, with over a uh, billion dollars in customer, uh, new customer deposits. Um, so we've had a lot of sort of money in both deposited into the platform and then traded in the platform. Um, and uh, we've seen, I think just last year, our users grow by about uh, 2 million users. 2 million users in the last year. Yeah. Got it. And so, all right, so I want to get more a little bit more into the you know capital raising that you guys done. All right, so you raised a seed round early on, um, and, and then you've raised, I think, from what I read, sixty-two million over the, from VCs, and then you raised a hundred million from private investors. No, no, we uh, we raised the initial round from Israeli angels. Okay. Uh, then we had uh, the BRM group. Okay. Sort of leading the second round um, in the company. I think that was two thousand and eight. Um, then we had U.S. investors. Uh, which actually include Howard Lindzen, the founder and CEO of Stockwitz, mm -hmm. uh, and Spark Capital uh, lead the C round. Um, then we had Sberbank, Pingan, and Commerce Bank, three of the largest, three of the top 100 financial institutions in the world, lead the D round, uh, which was 2015, uh, which was about $32 million dollars. Uh, and then we just uh, uh, about a year ago uh, closed $100 million, which was our E-round. So in total, we raised $162 million. But the last round, the $100 million was still uh, institutional investors. Uh, so the largest broker in Japan, investment house in Korea, uh, a listed investment house in Hong Kong, a lot of sort of foreign investors that typically invest in fintech. It's a lot of pressure on you. 
That's a lot of pressure on you. That's a lot of pressure. I mean, you know, building a unicorn and in fintech coming out of Israel, that's not not an easy thing to do. Um, You know, so with that, I mean, you know, I want to get to crypto a little bit just so, you know, because I want to see, really hear from you how much you're going into it. And I know you've written white papers about it. Um, Could you just tell us a little bit more about that and what you think, you know, your plan is for 2019 and 2020? Sure. So we started looking at Bitcoin in 2010. Uh, so very early on, uh, I got super excited about it because it reminded me of the early days of the Internet. Plus, I've been sort of thinking about the fact, you know, when I found Editoro and realized uh, that financial services, while it's in theory a completely digital world, uh, and probably still the biggest digital world in the uh, you know industry that exists, it's completely broken. So so everything is disconnected. Uh, that you know all the banking systems and trading systems and the pipes are all archaic. The banks are still based on COBOL language from the seventies. Uh, it's very still hard to connect to APIs. You, you need to do the T plus one or two settlement systems, which is how my grandfather used to manage his <laughs> bank in the 60s. So computers enabled sort of the growth of the banking industry and financial services industry, but haven't revolutionized them. Uh, and I think blockchain represents sort of a, a revolution in how to manage financial services and when we started looking at it back in 2010, we saw this new technology, the blockchain, and the ability to sort of send and receive assets on the internet, peer-to-peer, from everywhere to everywhere, in a matter of minutes, and basically settle and clear in real time. And that was a, an aha moment for us. Uh, then we sort of got more involved in the ecosystem. In 2012, we started uh, this movement called Colored Coins, yeah. which basically means how to tokenize assets on top of the Bitcoin network. Uh, We were very lucky to get a very smart uh, uh, young guy called Vitalik Buterin to work with us, the founder of Ethereum. So he actually joined uh, us to write the white paper. We paid him with Bitcoins. uh, And then he sort of came to the conclusion that the Bitcoin network doesn't scale well uh, to asset tokenization. And went and sort of set up Ethereum uh, in parallel. Um, and so you, you you helped found that Ethereum. Yeah, we we inspired Vitalik to sort of understand uh, uh, more about our sort of vision of tokenization of assets, and he took that a step further with Ethereum, both with sort of uh, tokenization of assets yeah. on Ethereum, but also with a Turing complete idea of smart contracts, which was. Uh, definitely a, a step further from what we initially thought about. And then for a while there, the organization actually felt I was sort of trying to pull the organization into crypto uh, and, and that the customers weren't there. Uh, and they were right because up until 2017, so we started trading in 2013, end of 2013, Bitcoin mm-hmm. to our clients so they could trade yeah. Bitcoin with us. And... Only about 2% of our clients actually traded Bitcoin until 2017. By the end of 2017, it was more than 80% of our users. So we had a 40x 
growth in the percentage of users in eToro trading crypto. So it took a while before sort of the world caught on. We are now putting a lot of efforts on sort of blockchain as the future infrastructure of eToro. Uh, there is a big difference on how you manage a financial institution if you assume that your database is sort of the set of truth and you need to sort of constantly uh, validate it or you think about your uh, blockchain and tokenization of assets and how do you create sort of all of the assets of the companies, all of the sort of liabilities of the companies to its customers on top of the blockchain and how do you move those assets both internally and potentially transfer them to the clients. So the way we look at sort of crypto and the blockchain is infrastructure of fintech uh, sort of 3.0 and potentially disrupting the entire financial services industry. Um, And uh, that's why we're building now eToro X, which is a crypto-to-crypto exchange. Uh, We just recently launched our wallet, which enables people to send and receive crypto assets. Uh, We'll be soon announcing tokenization of assets uh, and our strategic plan around tokenization of assets and how that connects together with the eToro platform. So a lot of what we're doing is about uh, moving our existing business onto the blockchain. I mean that's that's ambitious. That's definitely a lot of uh, <laughs> that's a lot on your plate for the coming you know yeah. year, year or so. Are you going to do that through? Are, are you looking at acquisitions? Are you looking at purely through building up through the company? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have six hundred some odd people now. Do you look to hire another you know fifty to hundred over the given year? Uh, our current plan is to, to recruit about one hundred and fifty people in the next twelve months, um, <laughs> and. Uh, we are definitely looking at acquisitions. We acquired three companies in 2018. Um, uh, we're definitely looking at uh, acquiring more companies in 2019. Um, obviously, that's very challenging uh, to sort of find the right targets, do the right deal, uh, integrate the company into the culture. Uh, so we're still sort of uh, learning the ropes around acquisitions. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I can imagine. All right, so we're going to wind it down and a few, a few more questions. I, I definitely appreciate your time. So is there a mistake you made in eToro that you, that you, you know, realized that, you know, oh, I just really, I think it was the wrong path. And how did you, you know, how did you fix it? Um, because, again, I like to ask this question mainly because it shows that, you know, no one's perfect, right? You okay. definitely have challenges you definitely have issues it could have been you know okay i thought we were going to go in that direction and in the end it wasn't so there's one very big mistake that that i think it'll even take time for us to still fix uh because it has a lot to do with the sort of dna of the company and that's that we underestimated the importance of high-valued customer to our business model. And we thought a business a business in fintech could thrive on small customers on sort of a high, you know a high proportion or a mass amount of small customers mm-hmm. and didn't appreciate enough the importance of the high valued customers to our business model. And there's a very big difference because it, it is quite unique to financial services. Uh, there's a couple of other examples, but 
We have customers today that have deposited with eToro more than a million dollars and trade more than 100 trades a month. And they trade significant amount of trades and they trade a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, we have, th- let's say, a thousand users who deposit a thousand dollars. And they all together trade a hundred trades a month. Mm-hmm. Now, if our SLA, if the quality of our service is 99.99%, then out of the thousand users, Right, We're, there's going to be roughly one, actually yeah. even less than one, that's going to see an error. Right, so you can multiply that by a hundred, yeah. so and and that gets more. But then maybe we'll have ten unsatisfied customers out of the thousand customers. But the guy with a million dollars trading a hundred trades a month, he's going to for certain see that error. Right, and he and he and let's assume again this is all in theory, <laughs> right? So you see one error and you say, okay, I'm leaving, right? So on the thousand clients, on on the lack of quality on the ninety nine point ninety nine, you will lose ten percent. Let's say one percent of, of the clients, yeah. right? You lose ten clients, but on the one million dollar client, you you're going to lose that one million dollar client. Now he's worth like the thousand clients. Which is why sort of quality and sort of tinkering the product, the user experience, uh, and the focus on the high-value customers is so important because doing a mistake with $1 million clients costs like doing a mistake with $1,000,000 clients. Um, And that's something that we constantly sort of improve in eToro. I would say over the past four or five years, we realized that at least five years ago, but the entire DNA of a company is bringing in lots of customers, and everybody's seeing those thousands of leads coming every day, uh, and and the you know account managers, everything. So it took us a while to sort of segment the business and make sure that we have sort of a diamond club for those with more than two hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and those would have their own customer service. They would have their own operations team. They would have some of the benefits that others don't have, and sort of making sure that as a business we can sort of take care of the high-valued customers is something that we mistakenly underestimated initially to fix. Um, I I think other than that, um, we a bit underestimated the the importance of uh, sort of the brand um, and initially sort of were significantly more driven towards performance marketing and sort of whatever worked, worked, rather than what did people see, how do people perceive eToro, are we creating intent or just serving intent? Um, and I think that's also sort of maybe a, a sort of a maturing of a company. Um, but I think that's definitely something we're constantly striving to improve as well. All right, so two more questions, um, and then we'll just wrap it up. So is there something that you do on a daily basis that keeps you on top of your game, whether it's technology like an email program or is it you know, working out in the morning, exercising? Is there something that you do that keeps you, you know, focused? And it doesn't have to be anything. You no, I, I I don't think so. I mean, you know, there was some sort of 
very important weekly routines, I think, for a CEO, probably for every manager. But, you know, we have I have weekly meetings with with every person I manage. Um, I have uh, and we have a weekly management meeting, uh, which a lot of people complain is too long, like a four hour management meeting every week. But I think that keeps everybody on their toes and everybody synced. And I think uh, startup mode before you have proper processes and procedures and routines, it's very important to over communicate. Um, I think in the same way we have very good sort of process with shareholders reporting from day one. We reported uh, quarterly financial statements in like a you know 20 page uh, PDF explaining achievements, what we've done, financial reporting. Uh, and I think now when I'm looking at sort of other startups, that two pillars of weekly routines uh, plus constant reporting to stakeholders, those are two extremely important things for every startup. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I truly appreciate it. It was uh, gr- great speaking with you and uh, good luck in 2019. And it's great to see that, you know, again, you're building a unicorn. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic to see. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.